Love is a choice. A lot of people get banked on like the feeling of love and that high emotional state. That's just neurochemicals in your brain and that's going to come and go just like being happy comes and goes. Let's talk about sex. I have a really good exercise that I love to get people to do and what I do is I actually ended up in a really dark, dark place. One night I was out drinking and I was triggered so badly that I wanted to kill myself. I'm going to give this thing called life a really good chance for one year. At that end of that year, how I feel, like if I still feel like this, then I can end it. And something in me instantly shifted. Like it was like I got to work. An emotion only lasts 90 seconds, but we make it so much longer because we avoid it and we kind of like take this sandwich and put it in the drawer and at first it doesn't smell, but six months later it reeks. All we need to do is truly sit with it and just kind of clear your mind and feel it and let it out, cry, yell, scream, swear. That will also give you a level of confidence and self-confidence no one can fuck with because you will be like, I I walk through that fire of hell all by myself. Like, no, I'm not taking a bare minimum. I'm going to, I want more. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. All right. I've been, uh, I've been really excited about this one. It's a little bit of a different episode, um, but something that I think is extremely valuable for everyone listening, whether they are in a relationship or not, because I'd say, you know, 99.9% of people envision themselves in a relationship at some point. So a little bit different to what we usually uh, talk about, but super important. As I was saying, we have Simon Gosling on today. Unfortunately, no relation to Ryan, <laughs> but um, we won't hold that against her. Um, so you're a holistic relationship counselor, um, which I can't wait to ask all about. Um, you're the founder of JAR Academy or JAH Academy, which is in your own words, how would you describe that platform that you've created? JAR Academy is really a platform to help anyone go through their subconscious behaviors and programming. And it's a judgment-free zone. It um, stands for just about healing. So it's not my opinion or your opinion. It's just about giving everyone the tools to move forward. I love that. And it's and and it's becoming more and more, like more people are starting to think about these sorts of things consciously, right? Like you never really, and maybe it's just because we're getting older and more mature, but like the words like healing and, and doing the work and shadow work and all that sort of stuff wasn't even really on my radar three years ago. Maybe that's a reflection of me more than like society, but it seems like this sort of work is becoming more forefront um, to the minds of people, which just makes me think, what were people doing like 30 years ago before any of this stuff was a thing? But I want to really ask you a, a lot about the whole relationship space and and there's so many things I'm excited to pick your brain about. So I might be actually looking at my sheet and my questions a little bit more than I usually do because I don't want to miss anything because I've spent quite a bit of time researching you and, and all your content, which is amazing for anyone um, interested in, in learning more. I would highly suggest checking, checking out your Instagram or your TikTok, which is just jah.academy. Um, but tell me before we dive into all that stuff, all the super valuable stuff, I want to, you know, kind of get to know you and your story a little bit more, how you got to where you are today and, and, and why you got into this space, what motivated you to dedicate your life to relationship counseling in, in that, and that really holistic approach? Well, my story is quite, um, a heavy one and an unusual one. So it kind of goes back to early childhood. I didn't have the best childhood and I kind of grew up, um, really not looking at that and it being very much my subconscious programming. Um, it made me date a lot of people that were probably not the best for me. And a lot of toxic cycles kind of played out and I was falling into the same patterns and then wondering why I wasn't moving forward because my ego was telling me I was fine, but I wasn't. So that old chestnut. Um, and it kind of got to a point where I started a business at 21 and 
it was just a complete mood chart of everything I was doing. Every time I was triggered in my relationships or upset by something, I would just completely end up going and falling apart and relying on kind of what emotional state I was in. And that kind of all led up to um, COVID where by then I was having a marketing business and marketing was like the first thing to go because no one really had businesses or certainty of what was going to happen. So that was really challenging. And um, I remember I was getting like triggered quite a lot at that time. And I actually ended up in a really dark, dark place because I had just completely squashed it for so long. And I actually um, got to a point where one night I was out drinking and I was triggered so badly that I um, wanted to kill myself, to be honest with you, Dylan. Um, And that was a really hard thing to go through. And I had my friends there and they were kind of trying to support me through that. But um, it got to kind of like the end of 24 hours of them looking after me. And I remember coming home. Sorry, this is such a heavy story, but it's so relevant. We've had plenty of heavy stories. It's okay. (laughs) Um, I remember coming home and being like, telling them I was fine and I wasn't. And I was like, you know what? I can't actually go through with this because they're never going to forgive themselves. So I'm going to give like this thing called life, a really good chance for one year. And at that end of that year, how I feel, like if I still feel like this, then I can end it. And something in me instantly shifted. Like it was like I got to work, you know what I mean? And I started just researching everything that like no one kind of really had talked about 30 years ago, like you said. And I learned about like um, attachment styles and subconscious programming and all these things that were keeping me stuck and ultimately controlling me. And in that year I went from – this girl that was quite mentally ill to all my friends calling me for advice and the knowledgeable one. And it made me completely shift everything in my business and my life. And then, yeah, I kind of got to this point where I am now where I want to help other people understand that it's not just um, ignoring things won't actually get you very far. It's building foundation. um, So building a building on very shaky foundations and it's something that we need to look at. So on, on that, now you mentioned the thing that kind of spiraled you to, to that point was, was a trigger. And again, you know, so much more about this than me. I'm still very much learning about, about this sort of thing, but talk to me about like, what was the realization that you had as you started to heal and move past that, that you realized, cause like when you're in those dark moments, you feel like it's you and you feel like it'll never change. But how did you realize that the trigger was actually a separate thing from you? And it likely happened, as you said, long before in your childhood or maybe an early, you know, toxic relationship? Um, So a lot of my research, I came along um, something called conditioning reflex. And that is basically where something, one of the five senses, it doesn't have to be what you're actually seeing. It can even be a smell. And what it does is it basically creates the same visceral effects. So the same amount of adrenaline pumping through you, the same fight or flight response as the initial incident. And when I learned that, I was like, oh my God, like all those times I was like, why am I anxious? I don't know why I'm anxious. I don't know why I can't do this. Why am I stuck today? Why do I just want to lay in bed? I'm like, there's things that are triggering me and I'm not actually really going to know what they are. Your brain doesn't tell you and go, hey, you're triggered. I actually just have to go back to the start and process this appropriately. Mm. And that's the hard thing, particularly for people that haven't been exploring this sort of stuff for a while because at the beginning, the hardest thing is even noticing that there's a trigger. You know what I mean? Cause you just go, you go, you roll with the punches and you go with it. But how do you, how do people that are trying to, you know, become a better version of themselves, you know, get past the, the things that are shackling them and holding them back. And the reason it's so hard is because I won't know what it is or if there is something, but you know, I'd say a 
90 plus percent of the time, there is something there. How does someone go or how did you go about working out what those triggers were so you can, you know, move past them or, or work through them? Well, you're completely right. Our ego will lie to us so hard and, and try and hide them from ourselves because our brain doesn't want change. It wants the devil it knows over the unknown or the discomfort. So it can be really challenging in that aspect of figuring out where they are. But if you are finding that you're stuck in certain spots, constantly going back and asking why. So let's say like I'm dating and I'm constantly falling into the same pattern. Like where, where am I going wrong? What is making me feel that way? And you use shadow work, which is a tool where you can kind of go back and reflect and you kind of pinpoint actually like I do know what this is. I've just kind of hidden it from myself mm. and really writing down if you're a journaler being like, if I was brutally honest with myself, dot, dot, dot. And a lot of the times you'll be like, uh, actually I do know my problem. I just lied to, <laughs> lied to myself mm. a lot. Mm. So that's, that's the exercise. If I was brutally honest, I'd, or what's it? If I was brutally honest with myself, like where I'm keeping myself stuck, or if I was brutally honest with myself, I'm hiding from myself. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Because I hear, you hear the work, shadow work thrown around and it's like gaining in popularity, like a lot of things, but I feel like a lot of people don't really understand what it is. Another, another, you know, term that's, you know, gained popularity over the last few years is inner trial trauma and healing that sort of stuff. Is it essentially the same thing? Again, like I'm, I'm still learning about this stuff. Is there a difference? Explain to me for like someone or like a layman that is just starting to, you know, become more aware of this stuff. Is there a difference between the two? And yeah. Yes. So shadow work is something that was developed by Carl Jung and it is basically any characteristics that you have disowned. And that can be either positive, which is like the dark shadow or um, sorry, negative, which is the dark shadow or positive, which is the light shadow. So I, let's say if someone puts up a bikini photo and it's really sexy, I could be like, oh my God, that's disgusting. What is she doing? And project onto that and have this adverse reaction. And then if I thought about it, I'm like, maybe I, there's part of my own sexuality that I'm not kind of feeding into. So it's something that's rejected and it's now coming out in projections. You can also have the light shadow and this is where we see people being envious of people or people you look up to and admire. They're all skills within you. We're all whole human beings. They're all in there. They're just things that over time maybe society's told you or people in your life have told you or you've told yourself that you can't do it. So it's not available to you. You've 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 come like you've learned so much in the last few years and you've come so far but where I want to what I want to ask is like where where did you start? You see you said you gave yourself that deadline got a year to, you know, go all in. Let's see what I can do, how, how much I can transform my life and my mental state. But where did you start and where can people start when they feel like they are really ready to make a change? I started with relationships because that was the most obvious one for me that was triggering me and the one that I kept like kind of mucking up on and getting stuck on. So I started there. However, wherever you're getting stuck, go and look into kind of like the psychology behind it and look into like what it is there and kind of move backwards. I always recommend like the best thing you can always do to start is just start reading, start looking into, that's what I did. I just literally started picking up books because I booked in like a psychologist and a psychiatrist appointment. They're like, yeah, we'll see you in six weeks. And I was like, it's kind of important. (laughs) You know what I mean? But like, it's so important to everyone because it's everyone's mental health. But all I did was keep reading books around the area I was stuck on and from that, you can kind of get a little bit of a, a flow happening. Yeah. Now we're going to go deep on a lot of things, but for you and your trigger was part of that 
because I know you've spoken about and you've mentioned coming out of a bit of a toxic relationship. You're in that cycle of, you know, finding the wrong people, the wrong person, the wrong person. How does someone start to heal from a toxic relationship so then they can, you know, because where I want to go with this next is like before we can talk about how to be in a healthy relationship and what to do when you're in a relationship. But in my opinion, it like the work starts before you're even with someone, right? Yes. How does someone first heal from a toxic relationship if they've been in one? and then start to become the sort of person that can then one day attract the the right partner for them. One thing that's really important to know with toxic relationships is it's pretty much a drug cycle in your brain of having this withdrawal and then coming back and getting all the oxytocin and the dopamine and the serotonin and this time we're going to work out and then you're kind of going back into it and you keep going back and forth and what ends up happening is like a drug dependency. Mm. So if you're coming out of a toxic relationship, I really advise to like go through the withdrawals you know, just cut the contact, go through it, let all your old trauma come up, hold your own hand and create this capacity to learn how to self-regulate, learn how to manage your emotions, um, do all the self-worth kind of tools and strategies that you need to do. Our brains will never go for something that is unfamiliar because it hates the unknown. So unless you kind of create that loving relationship within yourself, you're always going to find a new person who's your ex in different clothing. Yeah. Now, another thing that I wanted to ask linked to that point is like, you speak about, okay, if you go through that, you got to, you got to not avoid the, you know, the, the feelings and, and brush it aside and just move on and act like nothing ever happened, which is extremely easy to do for, for certain people because we have that, you know, self-protection mechanism inside us, particularly guys, when they break up, they won't even think about it. They won't even process it. They'll distract themselves with the next thing to do or the next girl, blah, blah, blah. But girls more frequently seem to sit with that process and then come out the side truly healed. What as, as you know, for the people that maybe don't understand what that looks like, actually processing the, the emotions after you've gone through that, what, what, what does that process look like? This is the thing with processing emotions. It, an emotion only lasts 90 seconds, but we make it so much longer because we avoid it. And we kind of like take this sandwich and put it in the drawer and at first it doesn't smell, but six months later it reeks. Right. So all we need to do, and I say all we need to do, like it's not the hardest thing in the world because it is (laughs) so challenging, but is truly sit with it and just kind of clear your mind and feel it and let it out, cry, yell, scream, swear. I don't care. Whatever you need to do just to process it. And then you'll kind of begin to calm down and soothe. And then maybe Two days later, you need to do it again, but it won't be as bad as that first time. And you kind of repeat the process every time you start to feel that emotion coming up again, being like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to sit with this. I'm going to hold my own hand and I'm going to do it. And that will also give you a level of confidence and self-confidence no one can fuck with because you will be like, I, I walk through that fire of hell all by myself. Like, no, I'm not taking a bare minimum. I'm going to, I want more, you know? And, and how would you describe the opposite of that? All right, guys, just quickly, I've got some news. I've spent close to the past 18 months building the ultimate program that takes you through the complete process, and I mean the complete process of launching and scaling your very own e-commerce brand from zero all the way up to a million dollars plus per year. And now with this program, what you're going to get access to is 15 modules with over 100 training videos and 23 hours of in-depth content, taking you through everything you need to know to build a successful e-com brand. And this is the important part. This isn't just stuff that you can look up on YouTube. This is stuff I've taken from real lessons and experiences building Happy Skin Co. from zero 
all the way up to an eight figure per year brand. You're going to get access to loads of custom tools, templates and calculators that I've used to build and run Happy Skin Co. There's going to be one-on-one mentoring with myself and other expert coaches. And there's also weekly group Q&A calls with myself to make sure you're feeling completely supported throughout the entire process. And now what I've learned from consulting to everyone from people starting their very first e-commerce brand all the way up to brands already doing seven figures plus per year is that there's a process and a framework to follow if you want to be successful with e-com. Now, if this is something you're interested in, hit the link below and go to join.viralbrandbuilder.com. All the information's there and you can book a call directly with me. Otherwise, send me a DM and we can chat there. Anyway, let's get back to the pod. As in the avoidant mechanism, like Uh-oh. how does that work at the start and then where do we usually end up? The avoidant. Um, so that's the sandwich in the drawer. And um, from my story, my personal story, you can tell eventually we'll catch up with you. And my personal favorites were drinking on the weekends, um, doing cocaine, um, all the things that made me feel good in the time, um, talking to multiple people at once, you know, getting my needs met elsewhere, not looking within social media is a huge distraction. A lot of people feel some, any form of angst. And instead of kind of asking themselves like, what is, what is it my body's trying to tell me right now? And working with that, they'll just pick up their phone and it's so habitual. Because we live lives like we're so busy. We're so easily distracted by social media. It's so, so easy to distract yourselves. And I feel like it's become not even a conscious thing. It's a subconscious thing. So not even like, okay, you know what? I don't want to think about that right now. I'm going to do that. Your brain does it before you even know what you're doing. Absolutely. Right. And we look at relationships today. I feel like around the world, divorce rates are probably higher than they've ever been. The things like, you know, social media, we now, it's like everyone is in the shop window for everyone to see whether they're single in, in their relationship, like the comparison. It's, there's a lot of things with the structure of our society that seems like it's harder or more difficult to be in the, you know, happy, healthy relationship. First of all, would you agree with that or or would you disagree? No, I completely agree. So this is going to be a little bit technical, but I'll I'll kind of break it down for you. Um, With your fight or flight response, so your stress response, which most of us are in a lot now because of how stimulated we are and how busy we are and all of these things, that's not your connection response. So for me to be able to deeply connect with you, I need to be in what's called the parasympathetic state or your relaxation state. And a lot of people aren't even aware how much society is now pushing them into this state. And then they're coming home angry at their partner and just constantly feeling like they're not on the same page and then distracting that with social media. So there's so many different elements that society's kind of pushed that all to. And we just need to create awareness for people. Yeah. And and another thing as well that you don't hear where when you're, when you're growing up, definitely I didn't like everyone idealizes love. Like I'm going to meet this person. They're going to be my soulmate. And then everything's just going to happen and fall into place so easily. But clearly anyone that's in, in a, a long-term say quote unquote successful relationship, they all say like it's a work in progress all the time. Like it, it never ends. How do people shift that mentality in their head that I'm just going to meet, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Perfect one day. And it's just going to be, you know, bliss every day to realizing, Oh shit, there's actually a lot of work that needs to be done. And it's a choice to be in a relationship. I think this will kind of land with your listeners. Cause a lot of them are quite business orientated, your business didn't just land in your lap. You didn't just give up on your business because it gave you the ick. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like you had to put in work and it was a journey and you had to, you know, a challenge came up and you kind of worked through that and then you did it again and did it again. And then you grew and then suddenly you turn around and you're like, oh, wow, I have this beautiful business. Mm. Same thing happens in your personal development story. Exact same thing happens in your relationships. We've got to learn to 
actually realize the work that needs to go into it and that all these other side options that we see on social media and Tinder and all that, unless you've dealt with what's within you, you're still going to find them in them because our relationships are our biggest mirrors. It's only mirroring what you need to work on back to yourself. Yeah. Massively, massively. Um, I wanted to ask you something as well. You, you mentioned the, the way society structured is pushing us more and more to that stress response. You sp- you've spoken about a couple of times, like an 85 year old study where I don't know how they did the study. Maybe you can enlighten us and the, and the listeners a little bit more about when people are in like single, you're, you're in the state of living that single life. You're in a low level of fight or flight at all times. Can you explain to me, you know, what, what, what that means essentially? So basically with this study, they did a, um, a check-in every seven years and it went for 85 years of this, um, these participants' lifespan. And they found that the people that um, lived the longest had the most successful relationships and healthy relationships and not just romantic relationships, relationships with friends, relationship with self. And what they ultimately determined is that the people that were single remained in like this low-level fight or flight. So fight or flight isn't I'm stressed or I'm not stressed. There's like a pendulum. And that's why sometimes you can feel a little stressed and you're like, yeah, I'm going to get this work done. And then sometimes you're like, I'm so stressed. I want to like tear my skin off. So having, not having co-regulation and having that other person there, they found kept people a little bit more stressed. So that's also something that's really important for those that are single and trying to do businesses. It can feel even more encompassing because you don't have someone to kind of go home to and be like, oh my God, that was so hard. This is so hard. You know, you don't have that person to fall back and help regulate your nervous system. What would like, and we're going to get into attachment theories and attachment styles, which is super, you know, intriguing to me. And I know, you know, you um, know all, all about, but for the people that like, that are the, on the avoidant end of it. Cause you talk about, they want the people to go home to, so you can have that person to support. I feel like for me personally as well, cause I was, I was like in business for so long, just doing everything my own way, even looking back to my own childhood, I, you know, handled a lot of my own needs in, in, in a certain way as well. So I feel like that, you know, lasts forever, essentially that impacts the way I am and the way I, you know, reach out for support. I feel like I need, like I've always been someone who emotionally handles everything I need myself. So I don't really never found the need to talk through emotions with people. Not that I don't like talking about emotions. Obviously I do have this podcast. I'm super into personal development and, and all that. But like, I'm a person who handles all my own problems myself internally. How do people that are, are wired a bit more like that start to, you know, break down those walls and, and lean more into the connection? So with that, and like you said, we'll talk about attachment styles, but I kind of need to briefly go into it here. Yeah, let's do it. Let's just, we can talk about it now. Um, So with someone who's like an anxious attachment, they don't think that they can self-regulate. So they kind of over lean in because they want co-regulation. For someone who is more avoidant, they believe that I I can regulate, I need, I can do it. And that co-regulation actually scares them and puts them into a fight or flight state. So they end up kind of retreating and withdrawing all the time when they feel stressed or there's too much co-regulation that they start to feel overwhelmed or you're in my space too much. And ultimately what needs to happen is just really small increments of putting yourself into that stressful situation and kind of aiding yourself. So looking for signs and signals that you're actually safe when you start to feel that kind of claustrophobic feeling mm-hmm. of being like, no, actually I'm okay. Breathe. Yeah. I'm here. And over time that will slowly start to dissipate as you kind of rewire yourself and your nervous system that other people are safe and that you can have that co-regulation and have, have those deep 
um, vulnerable, meaningful. Yeah, I can attest to that myself, like going through that process at the beginning again, like, <laughs> and this, this is like my ego as well, probably thinking like, oh, because I, I speak, spoken to a lot of people. I've been very interested in all this stuff, personal development and growth in, in many ways for many, many years. And I'd hear people talking about, you know, healing inner child trauma and stuff. You know, I genuinely said to myself and thought like, I don't have anything to heal from. Like, you know what I mean? Um, but then like going through that and realizing at the beginning when that, when that was that adjustment, adjustment period of like, oh, why do I feel, you know, why is, does this make me feel a little bit uncomfortable when it's, you know, I'm super happy to talk to anyone about anything. But when you put place in that position at the beginning, you do feel a little bit uncomfortable, but then each time you do it, you feel a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. So it's a process like everything else, this whole healing journey and growth journey that we go on now. We spoke a little bit about like the, the avoidant attachment style, but what are the other attachment styles for people out there? Might be the first time that they've ever heard of this. I only heard about attachment styles probably within the last year or two myself. So what's like a bit of a, a, a 101, a rundown of uh, attachment styles? So with your attachment styles, you have what's called like insecure attachment styles. And I hate that name because it doesn't mean you're insecure. No. For some reason, it's just the name. Okay. Yeah. So you've got insecure attachment styles and then you've got your secure attachment style. With your insecure, there's three. So there's your anxious, your avoidant, and your disorganized. Sorry, disorganized. Your anxious, um, like I said, wants to constantly kind of lean in and be in the other person's space and wants that co-regulation and struggles to kind of self-regulate and be on their own. Your avoidant will withdraw when there's too much co-regulation or there's stress and want to retreat back to themselves. Um, they, they're not very open in their emotions or communicating. And then you've got your disorganized, which is basically will swing between the two. So there'll be I'm all over you. Oh, wait, too much run away, back and forth, back <laughs> yeah. and forth. And the thing is, is that these aren't set in stone. They're pendulums. So depending on your upbringing, your childhood, you may have one that's more relevant or you may, as you're older, have relationship trauma, like being cheated on, a nasty breakup that will kind of push you into one or even the person you're dating will also bring it out in you. So if I'm a secure and I'm dating and anxious and they're super overwhelming, it's natural that I'm going to start to avoid. Mm. So it's really important when people are hearing about these things to ask themselves, like, is this circumstantial or is this something that I've been dealing with for quite some time? Because I think sometimes we can get a little stuck on the healing and like idolize what a secure attachment is. But a secure attachment, all it is, is that they can kind of swing between self and co-regulation quite easily. Yeah. that The way you put it makes so much sense. Um, and where do these come from? Obviously, a lot, like you said, they can be from, from childhood, they can be from a, a relationship, but what's an example of like a, a situation that might make someone uh, in that with their upbringing be, have a, an anxious and then a, and an avoidant. So with an anxious attachment, it usually comes from abandonment and not physical abandonment. A lot of people assume that. And because of divorce rates, people definitely assume that, but also when they're an infant, if I cried out and had a need, did my caregiver abandon my emotional need or did, were they responsive in time? And that may not even necessarily have been something conscious because they themselves might've been going through their own thing or been stressed in life. So they weren't able to be aware. A lot of um, the last generation got taught about kind of letting babies self-soothe and there was so much misinformation and all that kind of stuff, which attributed to that. So someone who kind of is an anxious attachment has that kind of more strong fear of abandonment. Someone who's an avoidant learned to self-soothe as a way to kind of cope with the situation. So then the co-regulation actually becomes scary. Yeah. 
I love all this stuff. It's so, it's so much, um, we just don't know, you know what I mean? And like having people and experts like yourself start putting out information around this, I think is super important because we actually have a pretty balanced listenership of like pretty evenly males and females. Um, so like for the guys that have never thought about any of this stuff that are getting, you know, towards your late twenties, there's, there's so much, um, gold in this and, and this sort of work. So I can't, you know, encourage that enough. And, and sometimes it is a little bit uh, uncomfortable at the start, but it's so rewarding. And to me, like with all things in, in life, when, when you're faced with the challenges, I got to think about what do you really want from life? Like, have you envisioned yourself being single on a bachelor when you're 40, 50, 60 years old? If, if yes, then sweet, continue as you are. But most people would say, no, like I've always envisioned at some point having a family or being in a loving relationship, but that it's not just like a one day you wake up, Oh, I'm ready for that. It's a process, right. To, to, to get there. Um, for, for the people that, you know, are at the beginning of their journey and they're starting to develop these skills to be a little bit more ready for a relationship, what sort of things can, can people do? Do you think, is it just about going inward and reflecting? How can people start preparing themselves for the day that they're in that relationship? And, and obviously if you go into a relationship with someone, they want it to last forever. So the biggest thing is self-regulation. Um, a lot of avoidance as well have disassociated from the feelings in their body and particularly male avoidance. As children, they were taught, don't cry, you know, boys don't cry, you know, you're not four anymore, be tough, be a man, you're the man of the house now. And they're constantly taught to kind of dissociate from their emotions. So also learning to feel back into the emotions and know that they're not scary is actually what's going to help you start to process what you're actually feeling and what's going on underneath and learning to take these steps and figuring out your nervous system for a lot of people who've never done any nervous system work I think it's super important to learn about how to self-regulate yourself and bring that into a daily practice because when you are triggered then you know you've got the skills to do it and you're going to believe that you can where I know so many anxious attachment clients they get triggered and they haven't been practicing it so of course when it's a hundred they don't feel like that they can do it because they weren't practicing when they were 10, yeah, you know? Yeah. And with that self-regulation, how can people do that? Is it breath work, meditations? What are some tools or tips or practices people can implement to, to try and do that? Like you said, the best one's always meditation. And meditation doesn't have to mean the same thing for everyone. Meditation is basically clearing your mind and giving something your focus. So that could be something like golf for my um, male avoidance out there or, um, cooking or, you know, drawing. It might even be um, meditation with your eyes open and staring at like a flame or closing your eyes and going that way and using your breath work, using your ice baths and trying to get into like an ice bath and not just be like, yeah, I'm so tough. I can do this, but actually being like, okay, find my happy place, find my calm, find my focus on my breath and bring yourself back down. That's all going to build your um, emotional resilience. 100%. And you said something that I think is important as well. Meditation, you know, whenever, when people think meditation, a lot of people will think, okay, eyes closed, focus on my breath, you know, calm my thoughts, just focus on breath. Like I've learned something recently that made so much sense to me and it kind of completely changed the way that I looked at meditation. There's been certain meditations, like visualization for me has been something that happens like second nature. I can go into an hour long visualization and it feels like five minutes. But me, depending on how you're neurologically wired, if, if, if you're trying to meditate, everyone like meditation is part of mindfulness, right? And there's a lot of different ways we can be mindful. But if your brain is wired in the way that you're sitting down and trying to be still and just focusing on your breath for 10, 15 minutes, there are a lot of people that's torture, that's agony, forcing yourself to do things that doesn't feel natural or feel good, 
doesn't have to be the way you meditate just because that's how your friend might meditate or that's what it says on Headspace. There's so many different ways you can do that, right? So I think it's important that you mentioned that it can, it can be a different thing for different people, particularly because like meditation, I feel like I almost got into meditation for ego. Oh, I want to be successful, successful business people meditate. But it's like, no, like it, what's more important is what you're giving yourself and that self-soothing piece, right? Like what can you do to regulate yourself, your emotions, your, your limbic system, your, 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 your like adrenal system, everything that's running through your body. So it doesn't have to be, you know, the black and white standard, you know, process for everyone that everyone isn't the same. Yeah, absolutely. And even another big one for um, those that are quite restless is walking meditations and literally go outside, go for a walk, don't take your phone, don't take your music and just forget, pretend that you forgot the name of everything. So act like you're looking at a tree for the first time, act like you're seeing a car for the first time. And it's just going to help you shift the brainwave states in your brain to just kind of come back and ground yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing I, I, I learned as well for people that have a bit more of a faster mind that doesn't necessarily feel good doing that sitting, trying to be still, you know, uh, meditation, you go for a walk, like you said, and you observe everything and you like, you look at the tree, you analyze it, then oh, there's a sign there. And if you can go for a long walk like that, that can be incredibly self-soothing and reset a lot of that, you know, dysfunction or dysregulation inside of your body. Now we spoke about kind of doing the work, getting ready for the relationship. Now, Guys and girls both, I'm sure you get asked all the time, Simi, how do I, how do I find, how do I attract, how do I manifest my perfect partner? What do you, is that, is that a question you get a lot? Is there any advice you have for people that are asking that question or thinking, thinking that to themselves? Absolutely. So I have a really good exercise that I love to get um, clients and people to do. And what I do is get them to write a list because a lot of people just go out into like the dating world and they just shoot in the dark. And when we were teenagers, like we dated anyone that came along and liked us being like, will you like us too? (laughs) And a lot of people translate that into adulthood, but we actually start needing to be conscious about it. So write a list of the top five qualities that you want to find in a partner. And then on the other side of that piece of paper, write five qualities that you will bring to the table to match that. And then I want everyone to work on those five qualities and just watch how things change because you'll start to see people that you didn't see before because you can recognize those healthy qualities in yourself. Our brain literally filters through our external world based on like our self-limiting beliefs and self-subconscious programming. So it's really is true that sometimes there's people there that you're not even allowing yourself to see because maybe I'm stuck in like, all men are assholes, you know what I mean? So (laughs) it has to be six foot 10, dark hair, you know, all that stuff. So get super serious about like the characteristics of the personality of that person and then match yourself to that. Mm. Now, obviously this is all leading to like, you want to have a healthy conscious relationship. How would you describe the difference between a conscious and an unconscious relationship? So a conscious relationship, a lot of people tend to put on a pedestal as like this perfect relationship. (laughs) And it's not all a conscious relationship is, is being conscious and aware of how our own, you know, self um, subconscious programming is playing out. So if there's an argument and I want to walk away and self-regulate being like, no, I'm going to stay in this moment. So it's making choices not to repeat old patterns that don't really serve us anymore. Mm. When we're in an unconscious relationship, we're not really aware of what's going on. There's a lot of, well, if my partner just did this, it would all be fine. But we've all got work to do. You know, Jordan Peterson says it really well, go leave yourself in a dark room and you'll find something to grapple with. Like there's always something that we can work with. 
For sure. Um, I love that. Go put yourself in a dark room and you'll find something to grapple with. That's super interesting. I feel like I'm, I want to do that just to see what yeah. comes up, you know what I mean? Just sit and think. And like, yeah, there's always going to be something. There's probably going to be a million things um, that pop into your head. But relationships, like I said, it's such a good place to start for so many people. Now, um, with relationships, obviously, one of the biggest things is, is communication. Mm-hmm. What are some ways people can start communicating better in, in relationships in general? And then I want to talk to some conflict resolution and more healthy ways to do that in a relationship. So with communication, the biggest thing is to offer kind of your nonviolent communication. So really using compassionate listening, asking questions, how they reach that perspective and kind of zooming out a little bit on the situation. When our brains don't know things, we like to jump to assumptions. And these assumptions are based on our past relationship trauma and hurt. So they're not the best assumptions to be making. So learning to ask questions and get curious when you don't know is always going to help. And if that feels really scary in what I'm saying, then that's when we need to kind of come back into the body and learn about the nervous system because all the positive relationship tools won't work unless you kind of can use your nervous system and feel into your nervous system and know where you're at. If your your partner's already really triggered, it's not the time to bring up that they left their underwear on the floor. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> of course. And um, with that, when when someone comes to your partner and and says or shares with you, "Hey, I'm actually feeling really stressed or really anxious," how can how can someone support them in those moments? One of the best tools I ever learned on this was: Do you want to vent or do you want advice? Because a lot of females just want to vent. They don't want the problem solved. You know, they just want to, they want to mope about it for a second and would like you to listen to it. Um, But learning to ask if they want to vent or do you want advice and then not rescuing them absolutely a hundred percent all of the time, doing things that might assist them in rescuing themselves. So is there anything I can do that would help you right now rather than just taking over the situation, which I know some men love to do. Yeah. Again, it's like human nature for guys as well. Like very like, you know, not this is a generalization obviously, but problem solvers and think, okay, there's a problem. What can I do about it? And like, and then sometimes like, what the fuck? Like, I don't need you controlling me or or telling me what to do or think or feel, but it's a, it's a pattern that a, a lot of people can, can get stuck with now with that, you know, disagreement piece or having arguments. Right. And I know I've, I've, um, I've heard you speak about there actually are healthy ways to have, you know, disagreements, arguments, and it's just a part of any relationship. Not everyone's going to go through and, you know, never anything come up. What are some of the ways that, you know, when, you know, emotions might be a little bit heightened or when there's an issue that isn't quite resolved yet, what's the best way to to work through that in a respectful manner where you're not hurting your partner or making it personal? If you feel like your emotions have gotten to a point where you're like ready for the fight, you need to try and take a few deep conscious breaths and bring your awareness back into like yourself and try and speak from a loving place. If that's not an option for you and for a lot of avoidance, they'll want to leave the room or they do leave the room or they don't text back and they, they choose this behavior that ultimately ends up hurting the relationship. You can still do that. It's okay to have space and it's okay to need to calm down and for the better of the relationship, but you've got to voice that and you've got to be the person to come back. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now on that, we've spoken, we've spoken about attachment styles, probably a little bit more, more commonly known is like the love languages. What can people do if they find themselves in a relationship and they might, might be three months in um, and they've realized that, Hey, we, 
both really are into each other, but we both have very different love languages, how we give and receive love. And it isn't necessarily conducive. Like they don't, they don't tick each other's boxes naturally. What can people do to start to, you know, help make that a better environment for both partners? Love is a choice. It's a lot of people get banked on like the feeling of love and that high emotional state. That's just neurochemicals in your brain and that's going to come and go. Just like being happy comes and goes. Love is choosing, even when you don't want to, of being like, oh, but I like to give presents and you want some quality time. You've got to learn to compromise. And it's those healthy decisions when you don't want to that make a good relationship. And as someone that, again, I've pretty got... I imagine there's an obvious answer here, but as someone that's spent, you know, worked with, I'd imagine hundreds, if not more um, couples, does the, is the, have you ever met any relationship where the honeymoon period ever ended? Where it was just that chemical feeling from the start to the finish to the end? Never. It doesn't exist. Yeah, what the fuck? The, mo- <laughs> the movies lied to us, they right? They did. The movies lied to us. So, yeah. You always go through like a power struggle phase, which is like when that endorphins and all those neurochemicals wear off and you'll start to see attachment styles come up and you'll have challenges to navigate. And it's all about just learning to communicate through them. People, no one gets handed a, a, a life guidebook on how to do this. Like we all need to learn and that's okay. And how long is there like a, a period that's been like researched or kind of most people agree on, is there like a general period or a range of that, that honeymoon period can be, obviously it's different relations to relationship, but is there a period or a, I'm not sure on any studies, but what I've usually found is that like after three months, people can't pretend to be someone they're not for longer than three months. And after that, they start to go, actually, Miss Perfect that I pretended to be doesn't (laughs) quite exist and I am quite needy and I do need this and I need all these things. So I usually find after three months just from what I've seen, but it, it can change a lot depending on you know, the couple and the challenges and the this and the that. I've definitely seen some longer and I've seen some that have lasted a few days. (laughs) Three months is just the number that I, um, I was thinking in my head, I'm I'm thinking probably three months makes a bit of sense, but for the people that do come to you, um, and for, you know, to, to, to level up for advice, to work with you, what are some of the main roadblocks or issues that people come and they'll be like, Simi, can I need help with this? A lot of it is dating anxiety. That's kind of the biggest one I'm seeing at the moment where people start dating and then they just freak out and they feel all these things come up within themselves and just run away and be like, actually, no. And then kind of start again, so many situationships, so many of these um, never quite getting anywhere things. And yeah, it's quite challenging because I think that the dating, when we're dating, scientifically it's shown our cortisol is higher because do they like me? I want them to like me. Won't they like me? Do I do this? And should I say this? And it goes on and on. But it's stressful for everyone and it's just something that you need to start to learn to work through. So how can, you know, with the rise of there's a million apps and it's becoming less and less common for people to meet, you know, in real life, in old fashioned ways, like people used to, how can people date more consciously? It's interesting because one thing that I've noticed massively on the rise, and I know it is here too with um, Cool To Be Conscious as well, like going to these groups where it is, um, you know, a weekly meetup and you meet all these different people. A lot of people go alone. Putting yourself in activities in real life is going to help you so much because, my God, I swear, if I had a dollar for every time someone said to me, like, I really liked this guy when I was talking to him on the app and then instantly they saw him and 
yeah. there was no connection whatsoever. So it gives you a bit more of a ground to build things out and take things a bit more slow rather than um, trying to force this romantic connection. Let there be a friendship first. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, and to to like the other end, when when people have gone through it and it hasn't worked, people have been together maybe a year, two years, three years, five years plus. Do you have advice or are there any tips you can give for people that are trying to heal from a breakup? Because I, I, we've, we've had a guest on not long ago and again, that was a massive period in, in her life. And she started sharing a lot of content around breakup and every single thing went viral, viral, viral. So clearly people need help and support to, to get over these traumatic breakups. What would your advice be for people that are, are looking to start to heal and, and, and get over that person, get them out of their mind? The one thing with um, with breaking up is that it brings to awareness similar situations through our amygdala and our fight and flight. And so old trauma is really likely to resurface and that's why it can feel really hard because suddenly it's like this always happens to me and remember when that person did this and those not just like the emotions that you're currently dealing with, you're now dealing with every unprocessed breakup and relationship that you've had. So a big part of that is learning to do the work in basically like there is no easy way out of it. There's no way that um, you can just distract in a magic pill and it, and it's over. But the first time you go through a breakup and you learn to sit with it and change your kind of brainwave state and think about, okay, this wasn't a failed relationship. Like this is one step closer. What did I learn from this? What can I take away from this? How can I move forward from this? You start to build this resilience towards moving towards what you actually want. Do you feel like it's healthy or unhealthy? Is there a, is there an answer? Like, can people be friends with their exes, or do you think there should be clean separation? I think that's a tough one. If there's kids involved, like, yes, I I know some beautiful couples who, you know, were together for fourteen years, got divorced, and they're still really good friends. I think it depends on the circumstances, but I think a really good rule of thumb that I like to keep is that if you wouldn't introduce them to your new partner, maybe not the best idea. Mm. I like that. I like that a lot. Now. I've got so many questions I want to ask you. Um, I'm just going to go go through a bunch of questions and just, you know, as I was saying, pick your brain on on certain things. Now, as I said, I studied a lot of your your content and and there's there's heaps that I wanted to, you know, dive into a little bit deeper and get your thoughts on because they're extremely powerful, the messages you share. But before that, something I wanted to ask you earlier and I I forgot with like the way the world's moving as well, what are your thoughts on what do you think is causing the rise of like polygamous relationships and that whole movement, what do you think is causing that shift and, and what are people looking for in, in those situations? I think it's quite interesting because if you go way back when to like caveman days, we weren't actually monogamous. It was all about spreading the gene pool and kind of doing that sort of thing. So I think for some people that polygamy has always been there because keep in mind divorce wasn't even legalized till 19. 19- 62, I think. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, so I feel like now there's a lot more freedom for people to express themselves how they want to and know that, you know, I don't want to make this person feel all my needs, so I'm going to do it across multiple people. We've had a big shift in society where we used to have like a whole community like backing us and supporting us and I could go to the older women for something and I could go to, you know, the young guys for something else. And there was this huge support network. And as society shifted, now it's just kind of us and my poor partner and me being like, (laughs) Hey, give me entertaining. Now give me motivating. Now give me this. Now give me that. And we're putting all this pressure. So I think there's, you know, these people who have so much love to give and now they're just wanting to spread that out. Mm. Do you think it then like based on that, and and it is a, it's a really interesting debate 
because you're looking back like thousands and thousands of years. Do you think it's like human in human nature to be with one person forever? I think it comes down to the individual, you know, like for me, like polyamorous doesn't interest me whatsoever, but it's because I need an emotional attachment with someone. And I find that difficult to do with more than one person at a time where people are obviously able to do it and live very happy lives. So it kind of, yeah. Have you seen, have you seen it work? Like, have you seen like, um, polyamorous relationships work like truly with like so, so, so much inner work because there has to be so, so many triggers, right? And uh, so I many, could never. and you've got to say like, Hey, this person's making me feel a bit jealous. And this did a lot of the people that I've worked with in poly, um, polyamorous relationships aren't really having the end goal of like, say getting married to the, true, like, true, yeah. so, you know, what, counts as like a failed relationship because I mean if you're able to love that person fully in that moment and it ends and that's all you were looking for then it was a success right yeah part of part of your life part of your journey you know what I mean like that's yeah exactly and then it just depends like you need kind of two people to be in a similar headspace you know one can't be you know holding on to everything that was and then I think talking back to like the friendship part if someone's in that headspace and the other person's not then there's no way it's going to work and it's just going to cause more problems are good. I've seen it happen so many times with so many friends of mine. So yeah. Um, but to my questions I had for you, as I said, you put out such incredible advice just on, on, on socials. I know you have a bunch of programs and, and events and courses that you're running and we'll be, we'll be launching soon. So I want to get to know a little bit more of them, but just some of the things you speak about on, on, on social media, I, I think is super valuable. Now I'm putting you on the spot. So you might not have the answers on the top of your head, but if you we'll do, give it our best shot. Give it our best shot. Um, so what are some questions that couples can ask uh, in order to develop a stronger connection? So when it comes to, Oh, this is a tough one. You did put me on the spot. So when it comes to asking couple questions using kind of the ones off my Instagram and not just to plug myself, but ones that are actually quite random mm-hmm. will help you discuss situations when you're not in that fight or flight response. So I find that um, part of the joys of working through it is that there are these random questions. And then I always try and encourage people, like, keep the conversation going. Because mm-hmm. usually something will come up and be like, oh, okay, like, we do need to change that. We need do need to change this. But there is recommendations from a lot of um, more family and marriage therapists about doing, like, weekly check-ins and all this kind of stuff. I don't necessarily advise doing that because if, particularly if someone's struggling with communication, that's going to make them feel very suffocated. Mm-hmm. So it, it's all about what works for you. Yeah. Have you ever played We're Not Really Strangers? Are you a fan of that sort of? Yeah. So, th- yeah, that's always a, a good one. There are other ones um, that are a bit more tailored to um, dating or you can get yep. them on my app, Jarek oh, so Academy on the Play Store. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So tell me about <laughs> tell me about those. Like what does it involve? So I've got uh, multiple different categories. Some are just fun. So when you just need a break and you're like, it's kind of a bit of like this or that, like a bit more playful. And then I've got ones that are like more conscious, like, let's try and make a deeper connection here and be more aware. And then I've got ones that are more, um, a bit lighthearted and getting to know people. Yeah. Now another one to put you on the spot. (laughs) What are, are there any activities that you can think of off the top of your head that couples can do together to bond, you know, cause quality time is different to, you know, sweet, let's hang out and we're flicking on our phones. What What are some of the activities that couples can do together to consciously bond? putting yourself in challenging and new situations. So whether that be a cooking class or I don't know, going to learn to drive a golf cart, like I I don't even know if that's an activity, but you know, whatever it might be, like things that are new to both of you is going to help expand that connection and deepen that bond and like that trust. And you'll learn things about the person you didn't know before. And you'll just, 
completely grow from that. So whatever interests you, but yeah, something new and exciting is always Yeah, best. so having that shared experience as well. Do you have any, for the people that are single, like, again, completely putting on the spot, you can say no, any like amazing first aid ideas for the people that like don't want to just say, oh, let's go see a movie? Um, that is that is a tough one. I think that first dates are always good when it's away from bars. That's kind of like the only thing I will say because when you're drunk, you will get along with everyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. particularly if you first like five dates are drunk and then you hang out with them so and you're like, mm, like, so I don't know about cool activities, but just watch your alcohol consumption, guys. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, another really, um, again, these are all, I don't like calling them buzzwords because they're really important things, but another, you know, buzzword that has been, or a statement has been, you know, growing in popularity or awareness over the last few years is holding space. Mm. What is, what, for the people that haven't really been too aware of it, what is holding space for someone and, and how can we do that in our relationships to help the other person feel seen and supported? So holding space is basically being there and listening, but without judgment with an open heart and an open mind. So rather than wanting to jump in and fix it, rather than wanting to give them advice, rather than, you know, thinking of how it affects you, it's basically just opening your heart and saying, I'm, I'm here and I'm listening to you and I want to know how you've kind of gotten to this place. And it basically allows your partner to express themselves because no one is quote unquote wrong in a relationship. Even when there's an argument about, you know, you were late, that person might've had a really stressful day. That's true. The other person might've been waiting for them for 10 minutes. That's true. Both of those are true statements and situations, but different perspectives. So it's about learning and hearing the other person out without kind of um, jumping in with your ego. And now another thing is all that I always um, like to ask, like, you know, experts or coaches, whatever it may be, you can have all the information in the world. And when you're observing and talking to a couple, it can be easy to identify some areas that are going wrong and give them advice. But do you ever struggle taking your own advice in, in when you're in the heat of the moment? Like, I feel like we're all humans. I, you know what I mean? Do you have moments where you know what to do, but it just isn't as easy to, to do it? Absolutely. Because the biggest thing is with relationships, it's all limbic brain stuff. You know what I mean? And they all trigger our core wounds, which is the most, I don't know, emotional field ones. So one thing I have learned is whatever I feel dysregulated, don't do that because when I'm regulated, all the education kicks back in. So yeah, but there's definitely moments when I'm triggered and I'm like, what do I do? And I call my best friend and she's like, regulate. (laughs) Do you, now that you're kind of a little bit more advanced in your journey, if you do have a moment of weakness and you, you know, present a behavior that you may be not proud of when you're your higher self, do you, how do you not, essentially what I'm getting at is how do you not beat yourself up? when you can be aware of, you know, something you're working on, but not, you know, making yourself feel guilty. If you're triggered and let's say you act in a certain way, it's all about course correction. So let's say um, I projected onto you. As soon as I'm aware, like I've done that, go, you know what, Dylan, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like that was not right. And that wasn't appropriate. And I own that. And I'm, I'm really sorry. And we all have moments where the heat of the moment gets the better of us, but it's about being human and being real and being like, how do I resolve this as soon as possible? Because that's what needs to happen. Like I need to bring it back to that baseline homeostasis balance um, so that we can move forward. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, now the part that I'm sure everyone wants to hear about, uh, let's talk about sex. Um, you've, you've started doing a, a new program recently. 
Sacred Sex, the workshop. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why you created that um, and, and why, you know, so many people around the world are having issues with intimacy these days? So Sacred Sex, just to explain it a little bit, is like a meditative form of sex. Um, it's not Tantra and Kama Sutra, but it definitely listens to those Eastern philosophies and says like, we might be missing some things here in the West. And what I basically teach people is how to have sex while being in that parasympathetic nervous system state, which is our connection state, like I said before. So having sex in a way that we genuinely connect with each other and we live such busy lives that you end up craving that because now you're coming back and you're co-regulating all the time. So when you're stressed, it's not like, oh, I'm stressed, I'm tired, I don't want to. Now you've kind of got this extra tool in your toolkit. So if you don't want to go for your meditative walk, you can have sacred sex. And um, perfect. And um, how do people take themselves out of their head during sex? Because it's a problem that a lot of people struggle with. This is a really hard one. And it comes down to a little bit about what we were saying before, where you've got to go back and look at what's keeping you there. Is it insecurities on performance? Is it a comment someone made one time? Is it, you know, your own body insecurities? Like what's keeping you in your head? Is it external stress? And you've got to work through and acknowledge that. A lot of our shadow traits that are lingering in our head, all they need to be, all that needs to be done is showing some light and some love and they'll start to kind of um, dissipate. Once you've kind of done that, then you're able to like feel into your body and clear your mind a bit more. Now, I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things in, in, in terms of, you know, what we've just been talking about with sex and the intimacy, you know, issues that some, some couples or some individuals face. What do you think the effect on, like, as you said, some, we're, we're missing something in the Western culture, right? What do you think the effect of like so much casual sex and normalized casual sex has done for people that, you know, might've been single for five, 10 years and they were so used to that and conditioned that sex doesn't mean anything and whatever, ex- exchanging energies with all these random people. What do you think the effect of like that, you know, casual sex exploding over the last, say, 10, 20 years? I think it's done a lot of damage. When you have sex with someone, so many neurochemicals are released for bonding, right? So sex does matter and it, it is important. And saying that it's not and going away from that and being like, oh, I'm fine, da, da, da. You're kind of doing yourself a disservice and you're kind of disassociating from what you're actually feeling. And long-term that's going to have implications where you start to see sex as an object. And obviously that's not the goal because then when you meet someone you really like, it's hard to kind of come back from. Like you said before, you can't just switch it. Now you feel like it. And what can, what can people do to start to reverse that sort of way of thinking and and become more connected? I think the biggest thing is learning to look at what's actually going to serve you in the long term. What's going to serve, you know, your personal journey, what's going to serve your romantic journey, what's going to serve your business journey and that working towards that. So is going and sleeping with 10 different people in like a week really going to help me move forward in my business and dissociate from my feelings? Probably not. (laughs) So we need to start kind of being honest with ourselves and then from there making decisions that align with reaching what we actually want to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. Now another one similar, I think it's even more damaging. Talk to me about your thoughts on porn. This is an interesting one. I read a book called Dopamine Nation recently and it talks a lot about like porn and the instant gratification of it. So not only are you kind of getting this instant gratification and you can have it any time, now when you're having sex with someone, it's not as meaningful because you're kind of 
you know, you don't have an unlimited bank of like this dopamine that you can always kind of go to. So that sex now with that person is going to be not as special and not as important. On top of that, it kind of distorts our view on how we should treat our partners. And we kind of have this unreal expectation of, well, they just do this and then I get to, you know, and it breaks down that communication of actually talking to your partner. Like, are you, do you enjoy this part? Do you enjoy that part? And really bonding and connecting. I don't know what it's like for women. Um, I imagine it's damaging, but I know for a fact, and there's a lot of people that speak about this in the studies um, about this, but the effects it has on men, like I can't even remember. I've spoken about this a couple of times. Um, I fucking would I would have stopped watching porn. Oh, 20, I'm 20. I would say maybe when I was 20, maybe like seven or eight years ago. Wow. Um, cause my friend, he's actually in the office. He, he was there with the guy down there was studying psychology for a while at uni. Um, and I talked about the, the damaging effects of it and he, he learned this study. Then he stopped. He's like, fuck, it's the best. So I tried it. And as guys, if you stop watching porn, I just feel like you you feel better. You're, you have more testosterone through your body. You're more attracted to people. You actually want to be more sexually active than before. I feel like porn has had such a, on so many levels that I don't understand because one, because I'm not educated in it, but so many, on so many deeper levels and people aren't aware of. And I just think fucking hell, like I would hope, and again, there's no way to control that, but like, I would not want my kids to to watch porn the way, you know, my generation did. I feel like it's so damaging, but can porn from, again, I'm not sure how well researched that you are on it. Can that have a negative effect on women as well as men? I think so. I think women, and this is a generalization, don't tend to watch porn as much. Oh, for sure. For sure. I'd men say. tend to be a lot more visual creatures. So they like that visualization. However, it can still be like masturbating like that in its own sense still is damaging because it's like your phone. So if I'm on my phone all day, I'm getting like so much dopamine, dopamine right? <laughs> and then I put down my phone and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm miserable. Like what's wrong. It's kind of like the same thing. It's an isolating experience. If I can get all this dopamine and do it like this way, why do I need to actually kind of go out there and, mm. and do these things and put myself in hard situations in order to get the reward? Cause I can yeah. just get on my phone. Yeah. So for the people that are going on this journey of like kind of transforming the, their views and, and their connection to sex, where, like, what's the goal if someone was to come with their partner and do, do a workshop with you or if it's, if it's a one-on-one, the, the sacred sex program, what's the goal from like starting point and where do you want to end up? Like what is a healthy relationship with intimacy within, within someone's relationship look like? So the ultimate goal of sacred sex is just to get you back to being really present and connected and actually f- feeling back into your body. So like we kind of said with some male avoidance, like they will tend to not actually be able to feel into their body and feel the sensations appropriately. So it's all about kind of creating that reconnection. So going from almost using each other to masturbate to like this really, and I call it almost sacred, like because it's so intimate and vulnerable and honest place that it doesn't just change the sex life. It radiates out into their relationships. So now when it's like a tough situation where they have that choice of like that, you know, that new behavior or that old subconscious programming, they're going to choose to be vulnerable. Mm. And I think that's a big shift, right? Mm. It's a big shift for a lot of people. Now we'll start to wrap up, but I, I, I want to um, get a little bit more personal with you for a little while and talk about some, some of, some of your journey again, a little bit more now with like, again, everything you've went through, all the skills you've learned, all the people you've helped over the last few years, what are you, what's one or what's a couple of things that you're going to do differently next time you're in a serious committed relationship? I think 
communication, like communicating before the incident. Like I always used to kind of try to be Miss Perfect and try to be like, I don't have needs and no, I'm the chill one and I'm da-da-da and hide when I was stressed because, you know, I had to be what society had taught me was like this perfect little housewife (laughs) kind of thing. And even like now with dating, it's so interesting because like I always say like, oh, like, hey, I'm just feeling a bit stressed this way. And like you are so like, yeah, okay. I'm like, hey, I'm getting my period. And they're like, great, I'll bring you some chocolate. You know what I mean? And it's kind of completely changed. Like I'm ahead of the, even the trigger now. Yeah. Yeah. So like communication, again, so many things, business, life, relationships, communication is such a massive tool. Now, again, something we spoke about a little bit earlier, I want to get your opinion as a relationship counselor. Do you believe in soulmates or do you believe that realistically there's probably a long list of people that you could find and create happiness with? You know, to be honest, I think I'm a bit torn on that because I think that there is a long, a long list, but then there's certain people that give you certain feelings, but even the most perfect soulmate of a person won't be your soulmate if you're not ready and you're not there. That's true. Yeah. So it kind of goes both ways. Like, yes, there's people that are so special in our lives and like, they feel like this like complete soulmate and we want to believe in that fairy tale. We've still got to do the work and chances are there'll be multiple soulmates for you at multiple times in your life Mm. and different stages. And that's okay. Yeah. Again, we just got to stop, you know, taking the movies for exactly how they Mm. portray everything. Now with what you do, what's, what's, what's the, what's your favorite part about doing what you do for for your business, for your living? Uh, Watching people just transform, you know, they go kind of from this place of where their emotions completely have a hold on them and a grip on them and influences every aspect of their lives, not just their relationships to seeing them, you know, out there dating happily and in a way where they're actually making choices that best suit them and not even in like a, a nasty egotistical way of like, Oh yeah, but you know, he wants to do this and I want to do that. So it's not going to work out. And I'm like, (laughs) yay. Yeah. Why do you think that's so hard for so many people? I think it just comes down to really working through those subconscious programming because if they've got all these attachment issues and all these other things, they don't want to be alone because they're repeating cycles that they had in their childhood and they're unable to kind of see a way out because our conscious mind hides it from us. Yeah. That subconscious wiring will get you, won't it? Yeah. Seriously. It's crazy. Now. Body always wins. I know. Yeah. And you can run from it from for years, even decades maybe, but it will catch up with you one day. Mm -hmm. Now on the flip side, are there any hard parts or difficult parts about what you do or have to hear and and work through with people? Absolutely. Like obviously I listen to a lot of like childhood trauma and kind of help them process and unpack that. But I don't think that I necessarily find that hard anymore because seeing them in that moment and watching them transform, like I get like almost excited because I'm like, just wait, little butterfly, like (laughs) you're coming, you're coming, you know what I mean? But of course it is um, difficult. The, The one thing that I probably get, frustrated at and this is something that I feel valuable to share to everyone is a lot of people figure out like I'm an avoidant I'm an anxious and then they don't see me anymore and I'm like no 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 <laughs> that that was like the the first That's part one, yeah. you've actually got to do something about it you've actually got to do the changes it's not so, like you know just a badge of honor and now you can do whatever <laughs> yeah. you want and just go oh well I'm an avoidant you know yeah and, yeah and um Do you or did you maybe earlier on, maybe you said like it doesn't affect you too much anymore. Was it difficult at at the start at all when you're getting used to this to not take work home and and those heavy feelings and emotions that come up affect you? 
Absolutely. And particularly as someone who didn't just read about this, but went through it, when I first started studying and when I first started working with people, of course it was triggering my triggers and I was starting to kind of go through that again. Like even now, like I have to be very like conscious and do a lot of self-regulation and all that kind of stuff. And obviously it's dissipated so much over time, but I'm just so dedicated to actually helping the people that I'm like, no, I can actually speak from experience. I'm, I'm going to, this is my passion. It's my life yeah. purpose. I'm going to do it. So what, what were you doing before this? Like, did you do this like straight? Cause I know you, you did your masters, right? Like were you doing anything before you'd had this life change, like direction change? Yeah. So I um, bought my first cafe at 21. Wow. Yeah. That's the thing with childhood trauma. You don't know consequences of your actions. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, yeah, I bought a cafe in, in a gym and I just literally thought like, Hey, if I build this, like people will come. Turns out it doesn't work that way. It yeah. turns out there's things called a council and there's permits and there's all this stuff. But that was a really life-changing experience for me because I felt like I never quite fit in in like the office corporate world or none of that interests me. Um, and then from there I went on to, well, interestingly enough, from the cafe, a lot of the local businesses were noticing I was like pulling people. And this is like 20 when Instagram just kind of became a thing and I showed them, I was like, oh, I'm using Instagram and I ended up doing all of their marketing. And then I actually went on to have a marketing business and an e-commerce business called Excel Slide as well. Oh, cool. Cool. It's interesting the path people take and it's like, I'm always like the people I love having, not that there's anything wrong and like truly there's millions of people that are happy doing the nine to five, but I'm really interested with like the path people have taken to, you know, figure out how to live life more within their own interests and their passions. I feel like it's really inspiring. And if there's a, there's a message with every single guest I have on that, you know, there is a fucking path for you that you will really enjoy and you don't have to settle. Um, but you, you mentioned something just, just a moment ago about, you know, their triggers were in, in some instances bringing up your triggers and you had to get used to that and work through that. I know, and you, you've spoken about, you had a, a, um, a 15 year struggle with mental, mental health and, and you've come out the other side. Now, how would you describe your relationship with mental health now? It's so different. Like, and that's like the most incredible thing. I went from someone who had like multiple suicide attempts to this person that like, I love life. Like I love every facet of life. Like something bad happens now and I'm like, oh my God, I get to experience this pain. And yeah. it's like almost disturbing how much I love it. You know what I yeah. mean? But yeah. it's, you know, of course I have my moments and stuff like that, but when you start to learn to hold your own hand, you get that confidence of like, if I can get through this, I can do anything, you know, and that just builds and builds and builds. So yeah, I definitely am one big passionate person for life now. <laughs> what what were like maybe your top three things that you changed, introduced into your life that helped you be able to go on that healing journey? Um, the biggest thing was like daily habits. So particularly at the beginning, if you're someone who's learning to self-regulate, practice meditation every single day, practice journaling every day to get out before bed, all of those feelings and kind of leave them at the end of that day. That was a huge one. The second one was um, looking into the body. Um, There's an amazing book called The Body Keeps Score and it talks about kind of our triggers and how it all is kind of pre-programmed, so reprogrammed into our body over our lifetime um, from our experiences. And from that, I did a lot of somatic practices, like big breathwork journeys, big breathwork releases, um, spinal energetics, if you've heard of it. Um, and the other one was ice baths. Like I literally went down to Bondi this morning and dipped in the ocean at seven degrees. Yeah. But that helped me build resilience in my nervous system and in my life. 
So getting control of your nervous system is, is a, is a big part of that, right? Absolutely. And it's not about like, we're not trying to beat our nervous system. We're just trying to learn how to recognize and learn where our nervous system state is at and then work with it, Mm. not shame it. And spinal energetics until literally today, when I was looking at all the things you talk about, I hadn't heard of it. What, again, what is spinal energetics? Well, spinal energetics is, it looks crazy when you watch the videos, like everyone's like, what is this? But essentially what it is, is um, looking at the spine and feeling for what's called like a fixation and same thing that chiropractors do. And it's basically where your nervous system is putting a tension spot on your spine and then kind of accessing it and getting you to breathe through kind of like breath work, breathe into that point that people end up having like a physical or emotional release. Wow. Super interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to look into that. I'm always like, whenever I can find something new to like explore, I feel like it's just an addiction of mine to, to learn more about the body, myself, my mind, you know, the past, the, the, the things that are inside that I'm not aware of and becoming conscious of them. So it's a super interesting world you're living in. So I, I imagine it's going to be a, a lifelong journey for you as well. What's what's next? What do you see coming up with the future of JH or JAR Academy? Um, with JAR, I'm about to release six online courses because I found that people come to see me for one of six things. Um, so people that are also like a little bit avoidant or embarrassed to reach out to someone and get help in this kind of area, they can kind of do it at home and work through it at their own pace. So that's kind of like the really big next step. And then I've got a few exciting projects coming up at the end of the year, which will you'll need to stay tuned for. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> when, when do you think those online um, courses are going to drop? September, oh, early so September. Yeah. Do you want to say what the topics are yet? Or are you going to? No, I can do that. So healing anxious attachment, working with avoidant attachment, sacred sex. Um, what else? How to unfuck yourself. So that's yep. for people that are feeling like I, I keep dating and I can't kind of get anywhere. And then um, wired for protection instead of connection, which is about learning um, how to kind of, let the mask down. I saw that as well as like, like today that, you know, protection versus connection. I thought, wow, it's really interesting. So many of us are wired for protection subconsciously. And it's like, you don't really realize until you're faced with certain situations, you're like, hmm, yeah. why, why do I do that? Or, you know, yeah. why do I respond to certain things in that way? That's your sneaky little nervous system being in a stress response and looking yeah. for more threats. Yeah. 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 I feel you. I feel you. Yeah. And, and um, system. Where's the best place for anyone that wants to connect with you to learn about these resources to, to find you? My Instagram is like my little home and I'm always on there and in my inbox messaging everyone because I can't let them be left on red. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so jump onto my Instagram and um, give a follow, send a message, reach out. Yeah. Sure. We'll link that all below, but it's just um, jar.academy, right? Yeah. Perfect. I highly suggest, like I learned a lot today, um, some things I'd heard about, some things I'd never heard about before. So really great resources and, and, and a starting place for anyone interested in, in learning and growing about all this stuff. But Simi Gosling, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Dylan. For sure. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.